and welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah. on the podcast today I have Matt McManaman. Uh, Matt has an uh, album out, Scally Folk, released um, two years ago. Um, before that he was the front man in the dead 60s and he's also toured with the specials. Um, so we're going to talk about Matt's career uh, right for the start and what, what's going on now and what's coming up in the future. So uh, firstly, Matt, thanks for coming on. And what I do at the start of the podcast, I like to find out what life was like for my guests growing up. So what was life like for a young Matt McManaman? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I was... Born and bred in Liverpool, uh, I'm sure you can probably tell by my accent, um, you know, born into a, an Irish family um, and, you know, kind of growing up from quite an early age, I got, you know, interested in music, um, kind of la largely down to, I've got three older brothers, so they kind of, they kind of, you know, they're musical, they were into listening to music and stuff like that, they didn't really play a whole lot of music as in instruments and stuff like that. They, they all had a little bit of a go, but they were all definitely into, you know, I, they were like kind of big music fans listening to records and tapes as well it was back then. So there was, I was always kind of exposed to music uh, in that kind of way. And then also, you know, my mother, she was really into kind of listening to, um, well, like traditional Irish music and, you know, right. even like rebel songs and stuff like that. And she always had that kind of blasting out of the kitchen whenever she was like cooking or, you know, like doing a, a daily chores, that kind of way. So I guess that was my first kind of introduction to music was just picking up on what my older brothers and, and, and my mother was listening to, really. Um, and then, you know, quite quickly, I started getting into, I suppose it'd be like sort of, chart music and stuff like that whatever was current at the time you know nothing cool at all yeah but uh <laughs> I, was, I, I always remember I was, I was allowed to kind of quite a young age with the kind of bit of pocket money go out and buy a record or or, or a tape it was then a cassette tape and I used to go down to the local record shop or or um Woolworths I remember I think that's gone now Woolworths but I used to mm -hmm. go in there and get like a, a, a cassette single for like 99 pence or whatever and then, you know, as I got a little bit older, uh, went to sort of, you know, secondary school or whatever, that was when I really decided this is my call and this is what I want to do. I want to be a musician. I want to be a singer. I want to play the guitar. I want to write songs. I want to kind of, you know, be an entertainer and be on the stage sort of thing. And it was around that age, around sort of 11, 12, I'd say, was when I really kind of got it into my mind. I'm going to become a musician. That's what I want to do. This is my calling. I felt it was like a, a vocation for me. Um, and then just try to just, you know, immerse myself in music. And I was learning to play the guitar at that stage, really started taking it seriously. You know, whenever mo most of the kids kind of in my neighborhood would have been out playing football or even playing some, you know, the, the early kind of, uh, well, there wasn't Playstations or anything like that back then, but, you know, they might have like a Nintendo or something like that, yeah, playing yeah. video games or whatever. And they'd be doing that kind of stuff. And I would just be in my bedroom, just learning to play the guitar, just, you know, trying to learn the chords, trying to uh, trying to play songs, mainly Beatles songs and stuff like that, you know, because obviously 
being yeah. from Liverpool, the Beatles would always be. They're never too far away from you know someone's uh, someone who's into music. Um, and then yeah, so so as as I kind of progressed and got a bit better and stuff like that, I had to. I was around fourteen when I basically kind of formed my first band. And to use a sort of an Americanism, I always call it like meet me high school band, you know. And then from then, that's when I started playing music and actually started to do some performances and playing gigs and kind of just onwards and upwards and just kind of kept going and kept going. And uh, that, that was it. It was just music, music, music. I was hooked on it. Mm. Do you think, obviously, you touched on it, obviously, with the Beatles and all that, growing up in, the, in a city like Liverpool that said, Right through for the Beatles. I mean, then into the eighties, you had the the farm stuff yeah. like that. Um, the nineties, you had cast and Britpop stuff like that. So you had music musical influences right through. Was there any other influences like further afield for Liverpool? Well, well, yeah. For me, I guess. I mean, you're you're dead right in what you're saying. The kind of almost. In Liverpool, there's there's so many good bands and so I mean, many. I mean, I'm missing out hundreds there. Obviously, I, I'm as I say, I'm waiting on a mouse getting delivered. I'm also waiting on um, Ian Brodie's book getting delivered. So there's uh, one, you know what I mean? So, um, I so there, I mean, there's there's so many influences in Liverpool, but I out, outside of there and further afield. Yeah, so like for for me, I got into the Clash. Which are obviously, you know, Joe Strummer and uh, that's a London, a London, where a London band, I should say. When I first kind of discovered them, I became obsessed with them, and uh, you, you know, I loved the way I was into punk anyway, and I'd started to to kind of, you know, discover punk and discover bands and things like that. And then when the Clash, when I discovered the Clash, and especially the way they kind of fused, like you know, like the ska and reggae and dub elements into, into into their punk sound I, that just kind of just blew, blew my mind and um it, the clash are kind of the, the, one of the well they are the only the main reason why i became aware of like jamaican music and like i said like scar reggae and dub so they were a huge 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 influence and I, yeah i still love them to this day still listen to them regularly and that um but yeah that was a that was kind of a bit of a game changer um, and then, like you said, with the Liverpool stuff, combining all that with all the great Liverpool bands, you kind of have a lot of stuff to to get your teeth into, type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So the, that's the the first band you started was us Rest Home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah, well done. You've done your homework there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Rest Home. God, yeah, yeah. That was them. Yeah. And and then Rest Home turned into Panhole. Is that that's that right. Was- now, Panhole, I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's got a, a John Peel session. Yeah, yeah. So, you were obviously kind of already quoted there. You got a John Peel session, you, you've, yeah. you've done all right to start with. How did that <laughs> come about? Oh, God, so long ago now. Uh, I mean, yeah, because like, it's like Pinhole had started to kind of gain a bit of, you know, track traction if you like and you know we were kind of starting to get noticed and we were doing gigs we were doing tours we started to do you know a couple of small tours of the uk and uh, we were getting bits and bobs on the radio um and i can't remember exactly how they came about but we did that at the time we had a guy who was managing us uh 
a guy called Shifty, his name was, funny enough. <laughs> that was, <laughs> well, that was his nickname, his real name. And he had a little, he set up a little management company called Shifty Management. And, and I believe, if I remember rightly, God, like I said so long ago, he was just kind of touting us around. And, I th- and it was kind of like old school. I think he was just sending like tapes and CDs and stuff to various people, various record uh, labels or radio stations and things like that. And John Peel just picked up on it. Just it, it landed in his hands. He managed to have a listen to it, liked it, and sort of you know got his people to contact our people type thing. And then we were invited in to do yeah a John Peel session. Um, and it was just yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny because. It's kind of quite a prestigious thing to do. And sometimes I forget that I even did that. Do you know what I mean? Because it was so long mm-hmm. ago. But yeah, it, it's nice to uh, kind of have that on the CV. It's a good box to tick that one that we've done a John Peel session. I know a boy up here. I know I know a boy up here that was in a band and he he was the same. He John Peel was big into them. They were the aphrodisiacs. They were good. Um, I don't think any of them are doing any music now, but you've always got that kind yeah. of... If John Peel likes you, that's you're doing something right in music, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a good uh, sort of mark of respect, if you like. And uh, yeah, like, like you said, you, you're doing something right when John Peel is into you. <laughs> um, so, so what happened then with uh, the split? Because for what I can gather, you kind of split, and then a couple of months later, the dead 60s kind of came about and quickly signed to Delta Sonic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because towards the end of, of, of Pinhole, that band, we had kind of, kind because of, Pinhole was kind of like a bit of a pop punk band. Do you know what I mean? And it was kind of like an American sound and pop punk sort of thing we were trying to go for. Um, and you got to remember, we were only teenagers when we were doing all that. So as we were kind of getting older and maturing and, you know, growing into men, if you like, you know, our, our taste started to sort of, musical taste started to sort of change again. And just going back to The Clash, that was when I really, really started getting into The Clash and discovering all the Jamaican stuff and like mm-hmm. ska and reggae. So that was creeping into the pinhole sound. And we just felt that we'd kind of outgrown what we had been doing up until then. And it all, and we just kind of felt, you know, we were starting to, to introduce reggae sounds and, and, and ska sounds into, into, into the into the band and we just thought you know what the best thing to do is is kind of like just knock this on the head and kind of come out and re-emerge sort of like rebrand it if you like because it was the same members of the band and we just said let's come out and just kind of have a clean slate we had this idea of going more uh combining the 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 punk with the reggae the dub the ska Mm -hmm. and then we we just basically like let's let's kind of clear the decks let's start again and we had this idea to call the band the Dead Sixties, and we said, "Right, let's do that." So we did that, and then we quite soon, you know, people started to take notice of us. And then it was—it was actually it was really quick. It was, we were only kind of a few months into doing that band when Delta Sonic uh, and Alan Wills, who was the, uh, the the boss of Delta Sonic, he's passed away now, sadly. Um, he, we came to his attention, and we had a few, you know, conversations with him. He came down to see us rehearse. Uh, and he just generally took an interest in us and then he said yeah do you know what I really like what you're doing I like where I think you're going I like you know he had a good idea of where he thought he could take us and help us and all the rest of it 
and he just offers us he offered us a record deal with Delta Sonic and the rest is sort of history as they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, obviously we, we touched on Liverpool and through the years I've had all these scenes and all these kind of venues so in the 60s you had the Beatles and everybody was playing the Cavern Club and yeah. obviously going further forward I've heard Ian Brody talk about Eric's yeah, and it was kind of I kind of got the similarities with the Hacienda in Manchester with Eric's. Everybody seemed to be there. Um, the the bandits had a a club night called the Bandwagon. Uh, so around about this time, looking at the bands that were out around about you, um, the Zootons, the bandits, obviously the Wombats, the Coral, the Little Flames, yeah. the Rascals, the Stands. Obviously, the Rascals came for the Little Flames. But obviously, the, you, that's a good list of bands that would be this new Liverpool scene, run about yeah. this bandwagon kind of club night sort of thing. So how 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 was the how did you see the Liverpool scene back then? Did you all get on? Yeah, yeah, and I mean all them bands you mentioned at that time when all them we all kind of came out at, at, at roughly around the same time. It was just absolutely buzzing. Um, there was so many good bands and there was just so much um, music being created and a big kind of scene and, you know, people were really kind of getting into it. Um, but funny enough, for us, the dead 60s, even though I knew all them bands and I'd hang out with them and I would go to the bandwagon, like you mentioned, I was good good mates with the band, especially uh, especially Gary, Gary, Gary Murphy, who was the guitarist. I was only with him not that long ago. He now works with a band called Inhaler. It was Bono's son, mm-hmm. but uh, we won't. I, I won't. I won't go off on one about. That. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I went. I went to see see them play not long ago, and he was there. Anyhow, um, yeah, and all that bandwagon stuff. But us, although I would go as kind of like a music fan or whatever and hang out with them, us the Dead Sixties as as a band, we we didn't we stayed away from Liverpool for ages, and we did that on purpose because. We basically wanted to go and, if you like, kind of like earn our stripes sort of thing. So whenever we played, we 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 kind of would go, you know, we'd go up to Scotland or, you know, all around the UK, uh, basically anywhere and everywhere. And for a good 18 months, we just wouldn't play Liverpool and we stayed away from it because we didn't want to sort of get lost in this kind of, you know, big sort of scene where it could be you could potentially you, you could kind of get lost in it all do you know what I mean and not be noticed as much yeah. and the other thing was we wanted to make sure when we did come back and play Liverpool which is obviously our hometown we wanted to make sure that we were absolutely spot on and we were like you know super tight super good uh, and kind of you know sort of blow everyone out the water type thing was the was the plan yeah <laughs> um. <laughs> Obviously, then going on tour with, um, going on tour with Dead Sixties, um, you you played gigs with Coral and the Tones, obviously, um, other other bands, Casabians, the Frills, the Music, Supergrass. So, what's what's the kind of big name bands there as well? How was it kind of touring with these bands and? Obviously, you get a, quite a different sound. Obviously, for like Kasabian, for instance, in the music. So, how did that go? Kind of touring with them. 
all, all them tours were, were brilliant, yeah. Um, and I mean, because whenever we, we went out on tour, it was just, you know, you, you're going out to play with these bands who have already kind of been successful or or on the or in the process of being successful. So we always wanted to tap into their fans, obviously, and try and bring them onto our kind of camp, do you know? And it was just, uh, all them bands were just so kind to us. Everyone, they all liked us. Um, they liked us as people. They liked our music. Um, so it was just, it, it was just, great just to have that opportunity to be exposed um to other bands fans and we would find that a lot of them would get into us and they would come and support us and and you know they, they would help us to kind of um you know develop develop as a band and, and develop our own fan base so it was yeah it was just brilliant it was just so cool and I mean, you talk about supergrass there funny enough i only recently i supported supergrass again on my own as a solo artist. Right. <laughs> so it's, kind of, it's kind of come full circle, exactly. you know? Yeah, which is great. Like, Do you think, obviously, the kind of, the fans taken to you, it, it does seem like, that, that the style of music, there's, there's no many bands playing the kind of the Scar kind of influenced music. Other, the only other bands that I can think of in about that time would be, Maybe the ordinary boys and yeah. maybe the rifles as well, which obviously the rifles seem to have a big following. Yeah. Well. So do you think it is that because there's no many bands playing that style of music, he's kind of attract a bigger fan base? Uh, yeah, I think so. Def definitely for us, because at the time when we kind of came out, nobody was doing that sound that we were doing. And like you mentioned there, the Ordinary Boys and the Rifles, they were two bands that we knew as well, and we had done some gigs together, some, some sporadic gigs. But even, I mean, nobody really sounded like us at all, and definitely the whole kind of, again, talk about the Clash, and going back to the Clash, combining that kind of punk and Scar and Reggae and Jamaican influence, I don't think it had really been done since The Clash. So we were like the first one, the first kind of modern bands, if you like, since then to do that. So I think, yeah, it did definitely, you know, kind of spike people's interests because it was a sound that hadn't been heard for a long, for a long time, especially, in, you know, early 2000s when we first kind of, you know, emerged and were starting to get noticed. Uh, it had been such a long time since any, anybody had kind of combined that style of music that people did just go, wow, what is this? This is mad. Wow, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah, I think because it was quite, quite an unusual thing to do, that's why we kind of got noticed. Mm -hmm. uh, the first album, the debut album, The Dead Sixties, uh, was recorded at Park Street Studios, uh, which seems to be, when you look at these, the, the amount of albums that I've seen recorded, at that studios, yeah. um, it seems to have had tremendous success rate. Um, what was it like then recording the, the debut album? Oh, yeah, it was brilliant. And like Par Street, as and Par Street Taxi, I believe it's closed down now. Uh, which, which, which is which is sad considering all the the, the great bands that have, have uh, that have been through through there and, and done great stuff. But yeah, I mean, like recording the album was was just brilliant. I mean, it was. I remember it was quite hard work because it was the first ever album I'd ever done. So you don't really know what you're doing. I'd like I'd be like I'd been in recording studios before, obviously doing, you know, singles or demos or whatever like that. But then to do a full LP of, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 songs, whatever it is. And I think we, you end up recording about 20 odd songs and then, you know, 
whittling it down. It's it's exciting, um, and it's also quite daunting because, like I said, you don't really know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but once you once you get into it, it, it it's great, and it was just and it was an exciting time because once you start he- hearing sort of once the album starts getting knocked into shape and you start hearing stuff back through the desk and you're hearing songs and you're thinking, oh yeah, this is sounding good. And then, you know, you kind of add the sort of the whistles and bells sort of thing. It's just like, it's a really exciting time to, to hear songs that you've written kind of come into fruition, if you like. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was just a fabulous, magical time, really. It's brilliant. Mm. It was released, am I right in saying, was it released in America before it was released in Britain? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How, yeah. how did that come about? Were these were these kind of already kind of big over in America? Yeah. Well, basically, what happened was that was the the, the decision was made by the record company. We had started going out to America, um, touring out there, and all of a sudden it kind of blew up. Um, we'd put out the single Right Radio, and um, and and then rate American Radio picked up on it. And it was, if I remember rightly, it was something like the the third most added song on American radio. Yeah, that's it. After White Stripes and I can't even who the other one was. Yeah, I think it was like Coldplay or something. Yeah, like that's Coldplay that, and yeah. the White Stripes. So we were doing really well out there, and we were starting to get a lot of, uh, you know, um, a lot of notice. Uh, we were doing gigs, big, quite big gigs, bigger gigs than we were doing in the UK, and they were kind of saying. <laughs> You know, you're doing you're doing really well out here. You've got to kind of stay on it while you're hot, type thing. So they made the decision to release the album earlier in America before it was in the UK or, or Europe. Um, and as well, we had we had American management. The guys that managed us were based in New York. They right. were like quite quite a big management company, so they were keen to keep us in America anyway. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of it was kind of like. A, Milk, milk it while it's hot. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So obviously the album, the albums come out. The album's going well, and um, due to play Glastonbury, and yeah. then it's hit with a, a lightning strike. That's How right, yeah. gotten was that? Yeah, I mean that was it. It was it was a tough one really because you know you. Glastonbury's Glastonbury. Everybody knows about Glastonbury, and and as an artist, it's it's a festival that you really really want to go and play. And yeah, like you know, we were asked asked to come invited to go and play it, and like like you you said that right there that like we were meant to go on and lightning hit the hit the stage, <laughs> and we had to we got cancelled. So that yeah, it was absolutely gotten. But we did still we ended up doing um, a kind of sporadic, slightly secret uh, acoustic set in one of the tents. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what tent it was now, and um, because we couldn't do the full band show, we ended up doing this acoustic set, which which was brilliant actually. It was really really good, and the place was absolutely packed. Um, so although we didn't get to do the full show that we wanted to do on the on the other stage, it was we were due to play. Um, although we didn't get to do that, we still did get to play it, but albeit in a smaller stage in, in a tent. But what can you do? That's the way it is. When health and when the health and safety shut down there. Uh, the, the stage there's absolutely nothing you can do about it and uh i, I remember it quite well actually it was the weather was absolutely atrocious mm-hmm. i remember the rain coming down and i know like glastonbury is often famed for being it's, it's often muddy and stuff like that but honest to god it was just you, you just 
he was like being in the trenches or something. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And you see, you see people, people seem to have a good time at things like that, but it's not for me. I, I no. hate it. I mean, yeah, I, I but... went to tea in the park 10 years in a row at least, and when it, when the weather was good, it was it was amazing. But see see if you get a bit of rain and it, it gets all muddy, man, it freaked me out. I wasn't interested. Yeah, yeah. These campsites are atrocious. Yeah, I know. I, I, I prefer the kind of the comfort of a nice dressing room or, or a tour bus or whatever rather than rolling <laughs> around in the mud or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, the second album, then you went to, to New York to record. Obviously, I, I was kind of surprised at that, but then if you're saying you had American management, was that kind of the reasons behind that? Yeah, that, that was one of the reasons. And the other reason was the guy that produced the, the, the album, um, a guy called David Kahn, his name is, he he's, he was American as well, he's from New York. So when, when it was decided that he was going to produce the record, he was kind of like, well, look, I've got, a, he had his own studio in, in New York. And he was like, well, come over to my studio and do it. So we were just like, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, what was like, you, you got two options. It's like, come to New York and, and record or hang around Liverpool. It was like, oh, I think I'll go to New York. <laughs> and what sort of differences did you, you notice for recording the debut album and recording the second album? Um, well, obviously, this, this, the, sec, the second one was done with this guy, David Kahn, who was a well-known producer. He'd done quite a lot of big acts. Um and I remember he just before he he, he did did our album. He was do he just finished doing Paul McCartney's album, right? Um, so they're the kind of like oh, the names escape me now. Some of the people that he done, but he's done big people. So working with someone like him was just it, it was it was completely different because it's, it's I guess it's like a bit of a different approach. And like I touched on earlier, saying when you when we done the first album, you don't really know what you're doing, and it's all a bit like kind of trial and error sort of thing, and you're kind of feeling your way around. On the second album, we, you know, I was working with this producer and it's much more kind of structured. And this guy had done work with many other artists. So, like, he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew the way he wanted to do it. And he had some really good ideas on how he wanted to produce us and what he thought should happen and what shouldn't happen. So it was... um, yeah, it was it was easier in, in that way. But I must admit, I remember it was hard in the sense that this guy... Love, lovely guy, brilliant producer, had a great time with him. He'd have you in it, you know, kind of like 10 in the morning and you'd go till sort of like 2 or 3 in the morning every day, right. you know? And it was... <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were there for three and a half months doing that and we didn't have right. any days off. Um, so it was like... That's the thing, when I speak to bands, obviously they all tell me about their, how their albums were produced or whatever, and all these producers all work differently. Some have them in during the night, some like to do kind of normal 95 type stuff, so it's you don't yeah. really know what you're getting until you're in there. And Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Yeah, You just don't know what you get, so it's a bit of a kind of a, a bit of a lottery sort of thing when they yeah, for this, this this guy, this guy just wanted to work, 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 which is which is great. But you know, I wouldn't do it now. I mean, when I record now, although I do still do long days when I need to, but I kind of find that sort of the nine to five thing 
is better for me because you just seem to be able to just get more work done in a way because you're not completely shattered or, or you know falling asleep in the middle of the night trying to put down a guitar part yeah. or whatever. I guess, I guess it all kind of has to work to your kind of lifestyle and obviously uh, yourself, you're a parent, you've got kids, haven't you? So you yeah. can't be sitting up all night just tinkering yeah. the guitar. You need, you get other commitments as well. Yeah, uh, exactly, yeah. The second album, I didn't see, did, did the second album no chart? Well, yeah, the, with the second album, it was only partially released. Right. Um, and it was released in uh, Fra France and Germany and Japan. And it was the reason, basically, leading up to that being released, the reason it was the reason it was only partially released and didn't get the full thing was because, basically, the record company dropped us. Um, we'd released one single a song called Stand Up, which was the only single to be released off that album. Mm -hmm. And it was our it was our worst ever chart and single. It, it barely scraped the top 50. Um, so when that happened, the record company were just like, they basically pulled the plug and dropped us. So we didn't get to release the second album properly, but we still had a, uh, we still had like a record deal in, in, in Europe and Japan. So they put it out. Uh, and... But then quite soon after that, we decided to call it a day. We, we, we split up the band, you know. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was a shame that... Obviously, around about this time, you get guitar bands, like, guitar bands are 10 a penny, and there must have been so much competition. So, as you said, yeah. one single doesn't go well, and that's you yeah. under pressure. And yeah. somebody else ready to just come in and take your place. Yeah, that's exactly what that's exactly what happened, and and especially at that time, in, that was around two thousand and eight, and that kind of time, there was so many bands and and so many bands that were, you know, they they were selling like half a million records or whatever, do you know, yeah, Even the stuff like that, and we weren't quite up to that that stand. I mean, we sold a hundred thousand records, which is really great, and I'm really proud of that, but. Well, because when you when you when you kind of not when there's other bands selling double triple them them yeah. kind of numbers, they're not interested in a hundred thousand. The hundred thousand seems to be almost like you're an underachiever or something. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess yeah, there's just too, too many bands doing bigger and better stuff. <laughs> so so when, so yeah, when we didn't chart as as high as we should have done, we just got the, we just got the chop basically, which is. Um, you know, it's pretty cutthroat, but I can sort of look back and kind of laugh at it. Well, maybe not laugh at it, but I can kind of understand it now. And it's, a, you know, at the time it was heartbreaking and, you know, you're pretty devastated. But, you know, without trying to sound like a cliche, that's showbiz, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like the, uh, the cruel world that we got ourselves into. So you just got to kind of, you've got to take it on the chin and take the rough with the smooth sort of thing, you know? So, I mean, these things seem to kind of work out in the end, didn't they? Looking at um, Andy Nicholson for Arctic Monkeys, obviously, he, he kind of get whatever way you want to look at it. He was either kicked out or he left his own accord. Yeah. Um, but if you look at him now, he's doing his own music and he seems happy doing that, so... Sometimes, sometimes through the course of time, things like this work out better for you. 
you might you might just not see it at the time. Yeah. Before the band split up, you played um, a Fred Perry gig with yeah. Terry Hall. Yeah. And played with his. Um, so how was that playing playing alongside him for the first time? Yeah, that that was a, a, amazing because I mean I think it's kind of anybody who knows me or is aware of of of, of the band or my kind of musical career will know that the specials were a big influence. Um, so when we got invited to do that Fred Perry thing, because us and Terry Hall were both connected to Fred Perry, they invited us to do this gig, and and um, and Don Letts was DJing at that as well, which that was another kind of big thrill right. to kind of meet meet him because he's obviously you know a legend. Um, yeah, so like so, so getting getting asked asked to do that was. was was really cool and at the time terry hadn't done really uh well he certainly hadn't done any special songs for a long time and uh he said um why don't i jump up with you and do the encore and we'll do a couple of specials songs um so that was like <laughs> amazing <laughs> and, and that was where my connection first kind of came with terry um and then we'd see each other sort of you know sporadically and sort of you know various music events and stuff like that but um it, you know that was where the connection was made and then kind of fast forward a few years later down the line and i was approached by terry to uh to come and play with the specials so that was, <laughs> that was just crazy as well as that just um before you before you split as well a couple of months before you split you get asked to design um, a couple of jackets. I don't know if yeah. you asked. Did you design them or can I just put your name to them? There. That that came about with a conversation uh, that I had with a guy called James Daly, who was um, he's like kind of uh, one of the guys who works at Fred Perry. I'm still friends with him. I still speak to him regularly, and he he there's a store, uh, a Fred Perry shop, I guess in. Um, in London, in Carnaby Street, but well, it's not actually on Carnaby Street, it's like kind of behind Carnaby Street. And we were asked to open the store. They were doing an opening, like a grand opening, and they said, Will you come along and play in the shop? So we said, Yeah. Um, we know we were all fans of the of, of the clothes and all the rest of it. And they we were actually had a you know, they used to give us um like an endorse, we had like an endorsement deal with, with Fred Perry, where basically they just gave us free clothes, which was nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for one of them for my podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 they still send me a few bits from time to time now, not as much as the ones you used to, though. You know, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. So we we got asked to 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 do that, and I was having the conversation after the gig with James uh, from Fred Perry. And it, it, it was kind of an off-the-cuff remark, and I just said to him, do you know what you should do? You should design a, a, a reversible Harrington jacket where the um, where the tartan is on the outside. Mm-hmm. And a bit like the way the old punks and skinheads used to do it back in the day, but I'm too young to, to, to remember the original, you know, punks and skinheads. Well, apparently that's what they did in the 70s. Mm-hmm. They would turn them inside out. It was like a fashion statements or whatever and i said i reckon that looks really cool we should we, you should have you ever done one and they said no we've never done anything like that and i was like all right okay you, you should and he was like all right cool and you know that conversation kind of ended like that didn't really think anything much of it and then i don't know maybe, maybe about five or six months later i get the call from him he said Do you remember that idea you had about the fred the the reversible fred perry uh harrington jackets i was like yeah and he goes 
do you want to like design one and um you know we can do it like as a dead 60s kind of uh um you know joint venture type thing where we put your name on something i was like yeah sound so even though i i didn't obviously i didn't design the harrington jacket because that was already yeah the design was already there template but i got to go into to the feb perry um kind of design offices and sit down with a designer and talk about what we wanted to do and uh got to to pick which tartans that we wanted and we did two which is ones that the the traditional red one, like a bit like that, I've got it on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a, if I remember rightly, it's called a Stuart Tartan. Mm-hmm. And then they said, let's pick another one. And I wanted to do like, a, it's kind of like a black one, which is a Cornish Tartan, it, it's it's called. So yeah, we just got, uh, got got to sit down and do and do that with them. And we put out 500 of each and they all had like a, a hand-sewn neck label. Right. That was not numbered. And it had our band logo, the Dead Sixties, um, and yeah, we did five five hundred of each of them, and uh, I, I, they all sold out. Um, I, I I've still got the two number ones, right? Because <laughs> I because it was like my idea. <laughs> you let me have the number ones, so I've got the 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 red and the black one, uh, with with all the labels still on, and I've still still kept them. Yeah. Well, yes. well, so when the band. Split then a couple of months later. Um, what what was the plans then? What, what, did you have any plans? Did you? Um, no, no. To be honest with you, I mean, when the bands when the band split, I mean, I know me, I sort of quite soon after that, um, I moved to Ireland where where I live now and where I'm talking to you from from today. So I kind of came back to the motherland type thing, and I kind of. Came came to Ireland to sort of like, you know, a bit battered and bruised, if you like, from my uh, from, from my experiences in the music industry, and I sort of came to Ireland to, to lick my wounds, um, and I sort of I didn't do a whole lot of music for a while, just kind of didn't feel up to it, sort of thing. I wasn't kind of like mentally or you know emotionally or spiritually kind of didn't feel I was up to it. Um, after you know getting dropped and sort of felt like you'd kind of been like um kind of chewed up and spat out a little bit yeah so i didn't i didn't do a whole lot a whole lot a whole lot for for a while um and i actually i never gave up but i just wasn't doing it like professionally if you like and it wasn't it wasn't really leaving the the the, the it wasn't any music i was doing all right and it wasn't kind of leaving the bedroom sort of thing do you know what i mean i wasn't kind of um letting anyone in on it or hear it but then I started I got in on the DJ scene then funnily enough in uh, in Dublin and I, I DJed for quite a few years right um, mainly doing like Scar and Reggae nights which was which was cool do you know yeah. so that was I mean, kind of these, night, was... these nights uh, there's, there's so many of them over here my area um, yeah. so I'd imagine I'd imagine they're big all over that's sort yeah. of the Scar the the mod Northern Solo, that stuff is is really big. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's still still a good few that, that go on. I mean, I, I don't do them anymore. I haven't done them for years. But that's kind of what what I did as a well as a living, I suppose, because I wasn't doing any like proper playing with bands or doing performances or anything like that. Um, so I, I chipped away at doing that, and then be, be, behind the scenes, I always had, you know, I always had this desire to do. A solo album 
and still do music. But it, I just wasn't quite in the right place to kind of get it all going and, and, and get the wheels in motion. But it was always there in the back of my mind. And I was always kind of like trying to make plans and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of scheming. I was kind of scheming in the back of my mind. But in some ways, I didn't even, I didn't have the confidence either to do it. Um, I did find that my confidence was hit quite hard after being dropped. It's almost a bit like, it's almost a bit like getting divorced or something like that. You know, when you... Yeah, it, it just kind of just knocks you. Um, so I was kind of, you know, sort of wanting to do stuff, but not quite, quite finding it in myself to be able to do it. But then anyway, so I kept kind of, you know, as a couple of years went by, and then all, then all of, then all of a sudden we got a call out the blue. Uh, if it was from a guy called Steve Blackwell, who uh, he was the manager at the specials, and he rings me up and he says, "Oh, T- Terry asked me to give you a call." And I was like, oh, "All right, yeah." And he said, "He said, would you be interested in joining?" <laughs> I was like, <clears throat> "I was like, yeah, okay." <laughs> you know, it's not every day though. Like, I, I remember that day, like at the at the time, I was like, in, I was in my mum's house, and uh, you know, I was like watching, you know, bargain on or something on telly. You know? <laughs> 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 like, absolutely nothing to do. <laughs> feeling a bit sorry for myself and then all of a sudden they get a call saying that it was Roddy the original guitarist he, he said he's he's left the group um and we need the guitarist to come and fill in can you can you can would you be interested in doing it can you come and do it what's your thoughts and I was like yeah yeah well at first I was a bit like is this a wind up or what and then it was like no I can assure you it's not a wind up Terry's asked me to ring you blah blah blah, blah. Uh, you know he, he, he obviously knows you from uh, the dead 60s days and doing the Fred Perry stuff and this and that. And he said, we, 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 if you're up for it, we'd like you to come. And I said, okay, yeah. Um, this was like on the Friday. And he, and he said, can you come to London on Monday? And I was like, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> so they booked me a flight and I went to London. We met them all, we just had a bit of a meeting. Um, and they were like, yeah, cool. Uh, if you're up for it, we'd like you to come and, come and join. And I was like, cool. And then he said, right, so the first gig is like, um, next month, I was like, okay. Uh, I said, where where are we playing? He's like, oh, the Isle of Wight festival. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, right. and they were like, we're second to top on the main stage. So it was the it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers headlining, and the specials on before them. So I was like, okay, right. So mm-hmm. I, so bear in mind, I hadn't been on stage or played and with a group like a band, mm-hmm. but it was around it was around four years. So I was like, right, I'm a little bit kind of rusty here. And uh, they throw me into like the Isle of Wight Festival playing to you know, 50, 60,000 people. <laughs> in, in, in Playing lead guitar for the specials. And it was like, and I had to learn all the songs. Although I knew the songs to listen to as a fan, I still had to learn how to play them, which, um, you know, that was, that was the, it was fun. It was really fun, but quite daunting. And then, uh, you know, I'm glad to report that the gig went great, and then I stayed, I stayed with them for around eighteen months. Then, and we did a lot, mainly festivals, mm-hmm. um, and then, uh, but I did get to do the South American tour with them, where they were doing like uh, Mexico and Chile, and they were doing like big festivals out there and a couple of show their own kind of like um, uh, cl- club shows and things like that in Mexico. So yeah, it was like a, yeah, a, a, I can a think of uh, worse places to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> did your, did like, your message get to go or was she stuck back in Ireland oh no yes yeah, she was stuck, stuck in Ireland yeah. oh I bet yeah. she was raging with you 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, 18 months with the specials, and then what was it after that? Did that kind of reinvigorate you? Yeah, yeah, 100%, yeah, because, like I said, I was kind of, my confidence wasn't wasn't really, you know, it was kind of at a bit of a low, but then getting to play with them and, and the way it worked out and it worked out well, it totally kind of just reboosted me and I, the confidence came back and then it was, you know, it was kind of the, the kick, the kick, the kick up the backside that I needed, you know, I just needed that and then. Um, I, I, I'm ever so grateful that I've managed to get that opportunity. Not only did I get to play with like one of my most, you know, kind of favorite bands, an iconic band. I it also, which is obviously that I mean that's a dream come true. But then yeah, it also kickstarted my my confidence and essentially kickstarted my solo career, um, because that's quite quite soon after my time finishing up playing with with them, I that's when I really kind of threw myself into doing the solo stuff and getting the solo record out and, and I kind of more or less haven't really looked back since then yeah um, I was listening to I had the the album on yesterday um, we've been decorating the house we've been doing the hall here the last couple of weeks after Christmas so yeah. I had that on the speaker and my missus she's no she's no really big into music she's like kind of she likes her 80s films and all that, so she'd be happy listening to Dirty Dancing soundtrack or something. <laughs> she says, what was that? What was that you had done earlier? I said, that's, that's boy Mark McManaman. I got him in the podcast. Um, yeah. And she thought, it's really good, isn't it? It's really um, easy to get into dead toe-tapping. She kind of she kind of likened it a bit to uh, Jerry Cinnamon. Which, oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. see the first song, Gaslight, and it does. It's got that kind of yeah Jerry Cinnamon vibe. Um, I've I've not had it at my head the last uh, two or three days, man. It's not as it a cracker. <laughs> that's, that's always nice to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, what what's been happening? Have you where have you been gigging then? With with that stuff, it, it seems to be you've been you've been all over the place. Yeah, well, I mean, recently I just came back just before Christmas. I was away in Japan. Uh, I was touring in Japan. Yeah, just with, on, with Leon. With Leon with Le- with, yeah, with Leon, with Jack, a.k.a. Leon, who I know you've had on the podcast. He was a good mate of mine. Um, we were out in Japan. We'd done a tour out there. And then basically then I came, got back from Japan and I went straight on to the Holly Johnson tour, which... Um, I'm sure most people who listen to this will know Holly Johnson was the lead singer and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah. Um, another <laughs> iconic, famous Liverpool band. And uh, he he's kind of like my, he, he's been like a kind of celebrity fan of mine since ever since I put Scally Folk out. And, he, you know, he bought the record, bought the T-shirt, bought, you know, everything. Um, and he, on his social media, he'd be, you know what, tweeting and stuff like that like saying how much he loved the album and this kind of stuff and then when he announced his tour dates he basically just contacted me and just said listen I'm going out on tour doing this um, it was th- what was it th- 30 years yeah 30 years anniversary yeah. of, of Relax and he said um, would you like to come along and be the, the support act and open up for me and I said yes yeah, sound so I was doing that um, so that finished just before Christmas and then now I'm gonna. I've actually got my first gig next week 
of 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 this this year this new year this 2024 um and i'm just just keep just keep gigging basically anywhere and everywhere that'll have me at the minute where does it where does the friendship with with jack come from the, how do you know him so i met jack uh oh we're probably going on about five or six years ago now i was invited to play um the shine on festival that's that's what i thought which they have every year in Butlins in Minehead, and I know the I know the people who run it, like the the, the MDs of it. Um, the one, the, the two guys, one's from Newcastle originally, but he lives in Liverpool, and the other guy is a, a proper scouser from yeah, Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, Everton fan, aren't he? Big Everton fan, yeah. yeah so I, I my, my pal, um, my pal Stevie Moffat, he he's DJ done there the last two years. Oh, okay. Um, Super cool indie night, it's called him and his boy. So I'd messaged him. Um, he he's like a good pal of mine up here, and I go to gigs with him. Uh, big supporter of the podcast. So I'd, I'd messaged him and gave him a list of who's, who I had coming up, and he was super excited to see your name. And I thought that that must be where it comes for the shine on. I thought it must yeah. be shine on. And then when I seen um, the gigs with with Leon, I thought, it's definitely, there's definitely yeah. a fine connection there. Yeah, because that, that's where I very, very first met him, and he'd only just started doing his kind of spoken word. I don't even think he'd done any gigs or anything at that point. He may have done a couple of open mic nights, but he was very, very kind of early days into his career. We basically kind of uh, met at the bar. <laughs> as, all, as all good friendships usually start at the bar <laughs> and, and he knew who I was from the dead 60s days and blah 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 and we got talking and he said I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a poet I do this kind of spoken word stuff and I must admit at first I was a bit like oh yeah whatever type thing I didn't really take him seriously <laughs> because you know you, you kind of just and I, I, I regret kind of not taking him seriously at first I was a bit like oh yeah whatever mate whatever sort of thing you know I'm trying to I'm trying to get drunk here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. And then, and I remember, then I said, "All right, then go on. If you're a poet, then do something for me now." And he did, and he rattled off some something. Uh, and I and I, it, I, it floored me. I was like, "Oh my god, this is absolutely amazing!" So we subsequently spent the whole night together, you know, chatting about music, poetry, going back and forth, this and that. And I said, and I was just like, said, "Listen." I said, genuinely and sincerely, I think you're really, really good. We should do something together, collaborate, do a gig, whatever. I don't know what's going to happen, but somewhere down the line. And then kind of, um, it was a couple, probably probably a year or two later then when we finally ended up doing, we did a gig in Liverpool uh, and I got him to, to be, you know, my special guest or whatever. And we've done a couple of little bits and pieces here and there. And then, we just said, let's just keep trying to do something. And then eventually we got to, we, we pulled off this Japan tour that we did together. Um, and there's going to be more stuff we're going to do together down the line as well. But yeah, I just think he's a huge, huge, massive talent. And he, he, he really is great. And I know that you've spoke to him on the podcast, which is a brilliant podcast to listen to. And if you know his backstory and his history and stuff like that, I yeah. think he really, he, he really is an exceptional person. And he's a great guy. And I'm, you know, I'm 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 honoured to be able to call him my mate, and it's great that we get to do um, gigs and, and and create art and do stuff together. Do you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, but but the the first the initial time, the very first time we ever met him, and the reason we became friends was down to the Shine On Festival where we both were. 
Yeah, it seems to be it seems to be really big. It seems to be getting a lot of traction that festival. It's an odd time of the year that kind of puts me off. Um, yeah. I'm a postman, so come mid November, we're not allowed any time off. So try to me try to get down that end of the country. Um, yeah. Time of year's murder, but I'm, I don't know. Maybe yeah, my baby will get me free tickets next year. Maybe, maybe that's yeah, yeah. It's it's a great festival to go to. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of, you, you just, like, I mean, like, I, I've just told you about how about meet, meeting Jack. And uh, it's the kind of place that you will meet people. And you, you kind of, like, opportunities come from just being there. It's mad, like, do you know? Yeah. And everyone's on the same vibe and everyone's on the same buzz and the music's good and... All that kind of thing, um, but yeah, it it, it is the, the time the time when because it's November, November I think they have it. It is yeah, it is November. Yeah, uh, it's a bit of a weird time to have a festival, and uh, and yeah, it, it is in, in my head, which is mentally impossible to get to. Yeah, <laughs> I've struggled to get there, and I've you know it's like it's a, but but if you can make the journey and you can get there, it is it is well worth it. Like it's good fun. Yeah, um, so I. Before we go into your heroes, obviously you've had another three singles out. Yeah. Um, since Scarly Folk. So what's is there any plans for another album? There, there is, yeah. Um I've just I'm I've I've been in and out, out of the studio at, at the moment and I've just put the finishing touches to an EP, just a four-track EP. And basically uh, I wanted to go in and do the second album. We've already it's all written and um demoed. And the only reason I haven't actually got it done properly is because I just haven't had the time to get into the studio to to do it. Because I don't want to just kind of go in a day here, a day there. I want to get in as like a block booking and, and, and whack it out. But we just haven't had the time. But yeah, a second album is on the way. I'm going to start recording it properly as soon as possible. Um, but in the meantime, I have managed to get in and do a four-track EP, which is going to be released really I don't know the exact date yet. We're going to get that out. But it's going to be kind of the front half of, of 2024 this this year. But yeah, there's definitely more music to come and there's definitely a second album to come. So kind of watch watch this space and Brilliant, it'll be with that you. sounds amazing. I'll look forward to it. I'll, I'll try and catch it a gig up here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that'd be really good. Um I so as you know you've listened to some of the episodes, the time for heroes. I asked my, my guests to pick four heroes to come for dinner. Um, why are they your heroes and what would you cook them? Um, so just fire away me. <laughs> yeah, okay, so my heroes, I mean, I know kind of all mine are kind of music-based because I wanted to, to, to be like kind of heroes that have influenced me in my own sort of musical journey or people I, I admire. I know some people may be like, oh, you know, me mum, me dad and me gran or whatever. I know that. that, that it's that's really cool. surprising. I, I, I think there's maybe like one person I've done like 60 or 70 episodes, and I think there's like one guest is picked but a family member. I think that's about <laughs> <it. laughs> okay, yeah, because yeah, I, I thought much more people would do that, you know. Like, <laughs> oh, me, oh, me, 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 grand is me hero, or whatever. But anyhow, right, uh, yeah, go. So the first one I'm going to pick Joe Strummer, uh, and we've kind of touched on that throughout this 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 chat um it was just a huge influence on me um you know i, I kind of got obsessed with him in 
in my younger years, uh, I always wanted to sort of like sing like him and play like him, and you know, even like dress like him and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, with with him being in the Clash, I love the Clash, and uh, they were just a huge influence on me. So Joe Strummer definitely. Um, and then who have I got? Oh yeah, the ne- next one I was gonna pick. Now this might sound a little bit out there, but kind of. Run with me. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick Pavarotti, Luciano Pavarotti, the famous opera singer. Oh, and, I know. I know. Now the reason I'm picking him is, it was kind of around the, the sort of the whole COVID times, um, you know, lockdown and all that. And as and as you do, like people were just like indoors watching TV, you know having Baileys on the cornflakes or whatever. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Not that kind of thing. And I was having one of them days and I was just watching the TV. And I often watch stuff on Sky Arts. And then basically this concert came up that was like Pavarotti, Pavarotti in Rome or somewhere like that from like the 90s. And I didn't really know a lot about him. And I kind of put it on being like, oh, this will be funny. We'll have a laugh at this. Do you know, kind of thinking, you know, this is going to be kind of rubbish. Mm-hmm. And it, and it just and I, I couldn't believe I've got I've got mesmerized with it and I watched this whole concert from like it was like from the nineties and some some time uh, and just just watching them I just thought it was absolutely brilliant what a talent and I'd never really ever listened to like opera or that kind of style of music obviously you knew a little bit everybody knows the famous song you know the Ness and Dorma yeah um, but I think that's kind of because it's affiliated with football that people know that one. Do you know what I mean? But I actually sat and watched this whole concert, which was like two and a half hours long or something on Sky Arts, and I thought it was brilliant. Um, and I, like I said, I don't know a whole lot about him, but I kind of loved the little bits that I knew about him, was that, you know, he came from kind of quite a sort of humble background. He originally mm-hmm. wanted to be a goalkeeper, like a footy player. Right. Um, that, did, that didn't work out for whatever reason. I think he got injured or something, but I think he was a promising goalkeeper that's what he wanted to do and mm-hmm. then to do a kind of a complete spin it on its head you know kind of knock the football on the head and become this world famous opera singer i just find that story fascinating and mental so yeah i think he's he's, he's a he's definitely a hero just because his whole kind of career choice uh, and his talents is just kind of yeah men- is, he, is he still alive no, he died. Uh, I can't remember what year it was now, but I, I think it was uh, probably knocking on nearly 20 years ago that he died. Oh, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, I did see one thing. Uh, I was reading it on the, on the internet. It was something to do with, and I, again, I didn't know this. Apparently, he, he was when he died, he was worth millions. I'm talking like 200-odd million. Right. And apparently he had he was married twice and he had so he had like his ex-wife with his current wife and it all and apparently there was a huge big you know kind of court battle because they all wanted his money basically the two wives wanted the wanted all his millions but better but I I mean I I never imagined in a million years that an opera singer would make that kind of money but he did so you know there we yeah. go hats off to him. Yeah, that's a good that's a good choice as well. I don't think we've ever had Pavarotti on the pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a feeling that might be the case. And I, thought, I thought, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have to go with that. Like people are either gonna go, oh yeah, that's a good choice, or they're gonna think I'm just nuts. But and you know, I think oh, he's an interesting character. Um where are we going next? Okay, yeah, there the uh, because I'm from Liverpool, I thought I thought I've gotta pick a beetle. Uh now I know that might sound 
you know, like a bit of a kind of, you know, boring answer, if you like. And and you probably expect me to pick John Lennon or Paul McCartney. They're probably the two obvious, but I'm not going to pick them. Um, and, I, and, I, and, I've, and I've met Paul McCartney anyway years ago in New York, funnily enough. Um, but I'm going to pick Ringo Starr. Do you know uh, what? They're, they're another first. Yeah. All the Beatles picked, apart from Ringo Starr, I've never been picked. And I, I was willing you to pick him there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reason being is, like I said, I wanted to pick a Beatle because it was, you know, Liverpool. I'm a Liverpool musician, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're obviously uh, <laughs> famous Liverpool musicians. And, and yeah, like the obvious choice would have been John Lennon or, or Paul McCartney, but I thought that was too safe. And also, it comes down to like, I think that Ringo would be the most fun if you got to like meet him or, you know, sit down at a, at a, at a dinner party or whatever, wherever it may be. I think he'd be like the most fun and he's, he, you know, he often comes across as being very mischievous and stuff like that. He always kind of has funny one-liners to say whenever you see him in interviews, uh, past or present. And as well, um, I would love to kind of speak to him because I remember him as well as the voice of Thomas the Tank Engine. Do you That's know? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd have to go, go down that. Because, you know, I remember growing up in the 80s as a kid, I would have been a fan of Thomas the Tank Engine. And then as I got older into music, then, you know, you realise, oh, God, Ringo Starr, probably the most famous drummer in the world, is the voice of Thomas the Tank Engine. So, like, we, so we'd have to have a conversation and he'd have to be, you know, like, I'd, I'd have to get him to be Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> I think that would be funny, yeah. you know, said Thomas, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, now, so... As a, a stylish guy like yourself, big into your Fred Perry and all that. Yeah. You would need to have a conversation with him as well about his choice of footwear because I wouldn't let him through my door if he was wearing a pair of these sketches. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, I wouldn't be a fan of the sketches. Yeah, you'd have to take them off and put something a bit more suitable on, a bit more cooler, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure we can forgive him for the sketches if he... Uh, you know, tell tells us some funny stories about the Beatles, and then and then he can all you know also tell us stuff about Thomas the Tank Engine. So you're kind of on a win-win there, do you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then okay, then moving on to the lastly, um, I'm going to pick. I want to pick uh, D.D. Ramone, right? Who obviously the bass player in the Ramones. I'm a big big Ramones fan. Um, love them, um, and I think. All that kind of punk stuff. I mean, this what I'm going to say now. This may kind of divide opinions to people who listen to. It. Some people may agree with me. Some people may be what you're talking about. I personally feel that 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 the Ramones invented punk. That's just that's just my view. I don't know. Yeah. A lot. Of, you know. You get the, obviously people talk about the Pistols and Malcolm McLaren and stuff like that, but they kind of get the the sort of the light the, the, the limelight if you like spread on them they kind of get the credit for starting punk but I personally I think that the Ramones were the first ever true punk band and they invented punk um and I think the likes of the pistols basically kind of stole it from them the idea mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm a big Ramones fan um and I'd love to I'd love to be, like meet or have DD at a at a dinner party or whatever because um I, th- I think as well, he's a great songwriter. And I think sometimes it might slightly get overlooked as well because people do tend to sort of talk about his, 
it's well documented about you know like his drug addictions or heroin and stuff like that and i almost sometimes feel that when people talk about him they focus on the wrong stuff in a way yeah, yeah of course you know he's known for being well a junkie i'm not laughing at someone being a junkie but you know it's just kind of um but I, I do genuinely think he's a brilliant songwriter, brilliant lyricist, great at melody, and he just looks really cool. And I think he'd be a really cool character to talk to. And, and I do love the Ramones, so he'd have to be there. Brilliant, brilliant band as well. I know that. I, I mean, that's three choices there that I don't think anybody's ever picked. Um, <laughs> but it, it's kind of when you look at it like that, a Beatle or a Ramone and Pavarotti, and nobody's ever picked them. <laughs> it's, it's mental. Yeah. Kind of says more about everybody else than it does about yourself, mate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When you say it like that, <laughs> a, a Beatle, a Ramon, pa- Pavarotti, and Joe Strummer—that's a bit of a trip, that isn't it, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I think that'd be cool anyway. Yeah. Uh, and last question, obviously, where would you cook them? Well, oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm not much of a cook at all. In fact, I'm terrible. Um, and I, I'm I'm lucky enough that my wife is a professional chef, so like she 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 feeds me and keeps me alive. Otherwise, I'd be probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> so so I've 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 with that in mind that I literally can't even boil an egg. I think I'd have to just give them all a pot noodle. To be honest with you, that's the best I can do for you. Boil the kettle, and you know, <laughs> and, and, and I, I, def, I, I definitely, I definitely mess that up as well. So I, I'd have to just boil the kettle and tell them <laughs> you have to do it yourself. Then <laughs> a lads' night and with the pot noodles. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I wouldn't actually be cooking anything. I just boil the kettle. That's all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, absolute pleasure having you on the, on the day, Matt. You've been um, a really good chat. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate um, I'll, when the podcast goes out, I'll share all your links to your social media and all that for everybody to check out all that and your Spotify. Yeah. Um, and as I say, hope to catch up with you at a gig over this way soon. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've got nothing lined up to be up, uh, up, up in Scotland, but it's definitely a place that I, I really do want to, want to try and try and do a gig up there soon. Do you know, just uh, I just I haven't really had any opportunities to come and play up there as of yet. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But I mean, you never know. Anyone who's listening to this, they might know someone. So if anybody's out there, yeah. I'm here. I'm available. I'm free. Do you know what I mean? I'd love to come to Scotland. <laughs> Give me a gig. <laughs> I do have a couple of promoter pals that I'll, I'll speak to and see what they can do. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I'm always open to any kind of opportunities. And yeah, like I said, I've always enjoyed in my time with the Dead Sixties in particular playing up in Scotland. So to be able to get up there and do my solo stuff would be, yeah, right up my street. Brilliant. Pleasure having you on, mate. Oh, um, cheers, Martin. Thank you. We'll catch I up with you soon, brother. Yeah, okay. Thanks a million. I'll speak to you soon. See you, mate. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at 
Time for Heroes podcast or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1 or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others, and more importantly, enjoy. 